right. Good morning. Very nice to be back here at Core Church, and uh, it's great to worship you uh, with you today. It's not great to worship you. It's great to worship with you, and uh, thanks for, for having me back. Um, it is true. I was here a year ago. I got to speak this message um, in lots of places uh, last year, but here as well, called Death, Hope, and the Laughter of God. And uh, you guys received me so graciously last year, and lots of places that I went, including here, people asked for it in uh, book form. And when I say people asked for it, I mean like two people. So two people asked for it, which made me feel great. So I wrote a book, um, spent most of last year doing that, and uh, it's just been out for a couple of months, and you can find it online and all that, but it's also here today. And also the first book's here, and I've got some LQVE t-shirts that's love spelled with a Q. That's in honor of our daughter, Quincy. And uh, like Daniel said, uh, portions of all the proceeds are going to the work that we're doing in Haiti to honor our daughter who was planning to be a medical missionary and go to Haiti. So there's a lot of really good stuff happening. And uh, thanks for uh, inviting me back. I'm so glad that Brad and Laura get a, a chance to, uh, to stay away from you guys for, uh, for a few weeks and to rest and recharge, and that says a lot about you and them, and uh, I'm praying that they would have a great time. And so today, uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about art, and about limping, and about a tiny citrus, and the joy of heaven, and that's where we're going to go today. All right, so uh, this is Alida Andre. Um, She just sold the painting for 24 thousand dollars at the age of seven. Wow. A couple years before that, she toured America, appeared on talk show hosts all across the country. And then before that, she opened her first art exhibit in her hometown of Melbourne, Australia at the age of two. When I was two, to express myself artistically, I used to like dress up in a bunny suit and hop around the house. That's what, that's what I used to do. In fact, this is me, literally, age two, dressed up in a bunny suit, hopping around the house, just to prove that that is true. Alita Andre, she paints um, in a genre that we sometimes refer to as abstract impressionism. And probably the most uh, famous impressionist, at least American impressionist, is a guy by the name of Jackson Pollock. Uh, Jackson Pollock came around in the 40s and the 50s, and he caused quite a stir in the art industry. This is his most famous painting, probably, 1A, 1948. Here it is, right there. That's right. That's a super famous painting, 1A, 1948, by Jackson Pollock. So Pollock kind of uh, pioneered this new type of art. Sometimes we refer to it as performance art. He would often lay out big old pieces of cloth and step into the cloth, with his footprints and handprints, and he would spill and splatter and spatter, and he would just make a mess of everything. Uh, uh, Pollock's art, and in general, abstract impressionism itself, is is a different kind of a thing. And he and others helped transition the art period from what we call sometimes... um, uh, Oh my gosh, I just forgot the word. But we moved into... uh, Oh, it went from representation to abstract, excuse me. We went from this period of representation where everyone was trying to paint everything and represent everything perfectly to now this abstract, which is pretty much just the complete opposite. Uh, Pollock helped us see the beauty, not getting rid of all the blemishes, but helped us to see the beauty right in the middle. 
And he celebrated beauty with the tension and the distress marks and the awkwardness and the footprints and the handprints, and it was just one big mess. C.S. Lewis says, when we approach art, our first task is to surrender. In fact, he goes on to say, uh, if you don't surrender, it's no good asking uh, first whether the work before you deserves surrender. And for, until you have surrendered, you don't really know. You won't find out. Uh, basically, what he's saying is when you approach a, a great piece of art or a great movie or a great book or whatever the case might be, a great sermon. There you go. Just making sure you're with me. Uh, to let go of your presuppositions of what this thing is supposed to be and to allow it to speak to you. And unless you can let go of what you think it's going to be, you will never hear from it anyhow. It won't speak to you because you'll be all wrapped up in what you think it's supposed to say because your agenda will get in the way. And some of you are like, why are we talking about art? Because the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to some friends in Ephesus. We call it the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this quite simply and plainly. We are all God's art. We are all God's art. Uh, the Greek word actually is this work poema, from which we get the English word poem. Sometimes it's translated masterpiece or handiwork. Sometimes it's artwork. It just depends on what translation you have. But the idea here is that God is this great poet, and you are the poetry. You're the poem. Your life is a great piece of art, and God is working in you, and God is working with you to make beautiful, good art. <sighs> Have some of you ever approached your life kind of like maybe you did Pollock's 1A, 1948, and thought, man, I just don't get this. I don't get this art, all the splatters and the distress marks and the handprints and the footprints. C.S. Lewis would say your first task is to surrender, is to just take a breath and to let go of your presuppositions of what you thought your life was going to be. You don't have to raise your hand, but is there anyone here who can relate to this idea that I can and that, that there's been more than once in my life where I've said, whoa, this is not what I had planned. This is not what I had thought my life was going to be like. These distress marks, this, this tension, this awkwardness is not what I was going for. Somehow, somehow, God is the artist in the middle of it with us, helping us in, in writing great art in the middle of it all with us. Somehow there's beauty in there, not because we live in this uh, art period, so to speak, of representation where everything is perfect and we represent everything specifically and exactly as it is or looks or feels or sounds like, but rather because we've moved into this abstract period in our life where God is actually using the tension and the awkwardness to create this beautiful thing. You're, you're actually a really beautiful painting. You're actually a really beautiful story. And if you can't see how it's going to work out, it's okay. It just means you're in the middle of a good story. You just can't see the end yet. See, none of us go to a boring movie where there's no tension, you know, where the hero, the heroine doesn't have to work through any issues. None of us go see those kind of movies. None of us read books where the protagonist doesn't have an antagonist and doesn't have to resolve tension. We don't care about that kind of stuff. It's boring. 
We, we, we like stories that have problems because somehow we identify with the people in the stories and their problems that we see them working and fighting and trying to find the good in everything, right? This is what a good story is, basically. You're just in the middle of a good story. That's all that's going on here. It's a, it's a beautiful story. You're just in the middle of it. And so this afternoon, when you and your spouse are tempted to fight yet again, and you feel the tension and the anxiety level increasing, see, what you can do is you can just stop. You can say, wait a minute. I see what's going on here. We're just in the middle of a really good story. You don't really know how this all is going to work out, but it's a beautiful thing. When you're, when you're fixing to holler at your kid or at your parents or at any number of people out driving on the road, see, you can stop at every instant at every instance, and say, wait a minute, I see what's going on here. I'm just actually in the, in the middle of a really good story. I can't quite tell how it's going to work out. And so then you surrender, and you allow God to kind of work in it with you to make something beautiful and good, because this is what God does. He makes beautiful and good things out of the messes of life. He's always got a good intention. Always does. So, uh, Today, I want to remind us to step into the awkwardness and into the tension and to surrender and let go of our presuppositions of what we thought life was going to be. Now, sometimes we might ask, well, uh, what exactly am, am I surrendering? And my, my opinion on this is that, that I'm not surrendering to God so much so that I turn into some kind of robot. Somehow God has created free will, and I'm a free agent, and there's randomness and choice in life, and, and somehow there are, there, are, there are decisions that I get to make, and he kind of partners with me, and so it's not like he just forces me to act a particular way. There's all these other things that are going on in life, but that he joins with me. In fact, uh, Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, we were all created in Christ Jesus to do good things that he intended long ago. So in other words, he's like this great artist with all these good ideas, and he brings us along, and he kind of co-works with us. He kind of collaborates with us. He's like this producer. We're like this artist, right? He's like David Foster, and you're like Celine Dion. <laughs> or, uh, or he's like Jay-Z, and you're like Rihanna, something like that. Maybe does that work any better? Maybe not? Okay. God is this producer creating art, and he's intended good art to come from you. Your life can be beautiful, and your life is beautiful when you see it, not trying to get rid of all the blemishes, but actually entering in to the issues and to the blemishes, and when you surrender. See, we have to fight the temptation to think that I got to get everything together and packaged up nicely and wrap it up with a nice bow before it's a beautiful thing. We have to fight the temptation to want to wait. By the way, when does that ever happen? It never, ever happens. We've got to fight that temptation and do the opposite, which is to step into a life with God right now and allow the beauty and the art to happen in spite of all the stuff that's going on around us and because of all the stuff. That's going all around us, right in the middle. So we've got to fight the temptation. Now you might say, well, why are we talking about fighting? I thought you were talking about surrendering. I love this quote from Peter Kreeft. Peter Kreeft says, if we don't fight, we will not lose. And if we don't lose, then we will not recognize our need. 
And if we don't recognize our need, we won't be in the market for God's grace. Got to fight to lose, to see our need, so that we can be in the market for God's grace. And here's what I know. I know that no matter what else is going on in life, the best place for you to be is in the market for God's grace. The best thing that can be happening in your life is for you to be, for you to be in a position where you recognize your great need. Now, that's counterintuitive. It's not what we, any of us go for. None of us sign up for that. But God, in his great mercy and in his great love, allows life to unfold in such a way that sooner or later you will recognize you're in the, you're in the need for God's grace. And that's a beautiful place to be because when you're there, doesn't matter what you bring, God can use it, and God will use it. He loves to do that because he's an artist. He's constantly making good and beautiful art. Your temptation, I'm getting all preachy here. Why am I saying you? Me too. All of us, our temptation is to try to go around our issues, but there's no going around our issues. There's only a way through our issues. There's no being distracted like and, and trying to do that and, and get to life and get to beauty and to goodness and to art. And by the way, our culture is really good at distraction, is it not? Like we are professional distractionists. That's not even a word. I think I just made something up. I'll do it again. It'll be, it'll be fun. We're really good at distractions. We have a whole culture of staying distracted. You know, take one more drink, one more hit of something. One more medication, one more episode of Netflix, one more religious little activity, just enough to keep us busy and distracted so that we don't, so that we don't deal with the issues that are right in front of us. The truth is we are all wounded, we're all broken, we're all dealing with very painful things that have happened in our life. Some of us have been the perpetrator of the painful things, and we just don't spend time thinking about it. That's where God is. I'm not suggesting he's not out here because he is, but where he wants you to be is here so that he can find you, so he can create beautiful and good art out of your life and not be distracted. There's no way around. There's only a way through, which frankly scares us and overwhelms us. I've thought of something, an author, Megan Devine, the last couple years, I've thought of what she has said probably as much as anything, and um, I know it's in the book. I may have said it last time I was here because I don't really have that much material. So you got to give me a few months before you ask to come back. But I love what Megan Devine says. Um, she says some things. Now, she's writing about grief, but I think this is true in so many areas. Because you all know there's different kinds of grief, right? There's, there's death of a loved one, but there's death of a dream. There's death of um, a relationship. There's death, death of the way you thought something was going to be. And she says, some things have been broken so badly that the truth is they can't be fixed. They can only be carried. They can only be carried. I love the mental image of a person struggling and carrying, but Jesus carrying it along with them together. I think that's what a picture of a Christ follower is. For far too long, we've been trying to fix all of our problems. And in fact, we've even sold Jesus in a way is to come and fix our problems. Like we can use Jesus like any other kind of commodity. Buy this soap, you know, you'll not only be cleaner, but you'll have a better life, right? That's what they tell us. 
You know, buy this car. You'll be cool, and, and your life will be this much better. This is, we get assaulted all day long by this kind of advertising. And some of us have just substituted Jesus for the soap or the toothpaste or the car or the laundry detergent. Use Jesus. You'll, you'll be cooler, and your life will be better. And really, truthfully, honestly, Jesus just can't be used like that. It's not the way that it works. You, you don't use God. God uses us. You don't use life. Life works with us and in us. And somehow in the middle of all of that, God is creating something beautiful in your life. You're in the middle of a really good story. If you would just slow down, stop trying to fix it, and just carry it. Just carry it. And then what will happen is um, you won't be very strong. You know, you won't look as cool. You won't walk as straight. You'll probably limp. You'll probably be a mess. You'll probably have to start being vulnerable. Oh, man. See, now look. No one's saying amen. It's just kind of super quiet. Are you kidding me? We're Americans. We're Christians. We don't get vulnerable. Oh, my word. God help us. God help us. I don't know if you know the story about Jacob. He's in the very first book of the Bible. The book called Genesis. I love the story of Jacob. Jacob was born the twin brother of Esau. And as the story goes, Esau came out of the womb first, and Jacob came behind, grabbing onto his heel. It's quite the picture of tenacity and stubbornness. In fact, Jacob's name means heel grabber, trickster, deceiver. How would you like that for your name? Yo, heel grabber, what's up? Heel grabber, trickster, deceiver. This was Jacob's name. In Jacob's day, pretty much the, the entire economy of a family would revolve around the oldest son. If you were the oldest son, you would receive the inheritance and the blessing and the money and the cattle and the sheep and the camels and whatever else you had in the ancient Near East. It all revolved around you. Some brothers missed it by a few years. Jacob missed it by just a few seconds. But true to his name, heel grabber, trickster, deceiver, he grows up and he deceives his father and his brother out of the family inheritance, out of the family blessing. And when Esau finds out about this, Esau feels blessed and he wants to find Jacob to give him a hug and sing Kumbaya. Actually, no, that's not the case. The complete opposite happened. Esau was upset at Jacob, and he uh, went after him, and so Jacob basically runs for his life to save himself. And so Jacob decides to head um, to some distant family, namely to his uncle Laban, uh, Laban's household. And on the way, it's a pretty hilarious story, actually. It takes up quite a bit of um, the last part of the book of Genesis. On the way, Jacob runs into some of Laban's family, some shepherds and some others as they're watering their cattle and those kinds of things. And it's there that Jacob lays eyes on Rachel. He sees Rachel and he digs Rachel. And we know this because in the story, and this is pretty funny, when Jacob sees Rachel, who is the youngest daughter of Laban, he starts crying, he bursts into tears, and goes over and kisses her on the cheek because of her beauty. Now, how many of you girls would be weirded out by that? The first time you see this dude, he starts 
crying because you're so beautiful. He kisses you on the cheek. I mean, it's kind of sweet, but it's kind of creepy. It's kind of weird, too, at the same time. And we think poking people on Facebook is weird. I think this is way stranger. And so he's kissing her on his cheek, and, and he's falling in love with her immediately. He winds up following her and the shepherds back to Laban's um, house, and he makes this arrangement with her father, Laban, to marry her, to get, gain her hand in marriage if he works for seven years for the family. So he works seven years, uh, and the wedding happens, and Jacob is happily married. He wakes up the day after his wedding, that first morning, and, and it's uh, comical, sad, but comical in the story. He basically, the, the narrator tells us, he rolls over in bed to see Jacob, or excuse me, to see Rachel, only to find her older sister, Leah. So somehow, the night before, Laban had extracted Rachel and inserted the older sister, Leah. I don't know exactly how this went down. You would have thought someone at the rehearsal dinner would have said something. At some point, Jacob was clearly inebriated or something was going on that shouldn't have. He, he thinks he marries Rachel, but he actually marries the older sister, Leah. And so Jacob understandably goes to his father-in-law, his uncle, Laban, and he says, how could you have done this for me? I thought we had an arrangement. I worked for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, not your older daughter, Leah. And then Laban says something very important, and I think it's a a pivotal moment in the story of Jacob, because Laban basically says, Jacob, I don't know how you do it in your part of the country, but here we take care of the oldest child first. And it's this whole veiled jab at Jacob's character, except it's not that veiled at all, is it? Like, I know about you, heel grabber, trickster, deceiver. Like, I have heard stories. I know what's going on. We don't do it that way here. We take care of the older sibling first. And Jacob, the deceiver, becomes the deceive-e for the first time. And so Jacob makes another arrangement with Laban to work another seven years in order to gain Rachel's hand in marriage, which he does, and now he has two wives. And by the way, don't even think about trying to read into the story like that this is God's blessing on polygamy, like we're supposed to marry multiple people. That is not what's going on here because there's all kinds of issues because of it. And every time it's brought up in the Bible, there's all kinds of issues because of it. But at any rate, Jacob has two wives now, and he's got kids, and the cattle are growing, and and uh, his business is growing, and there's tension in Laban's camp because Jacob is blessed, you know, and his business sense makes him increase in numbers, and Laban's family and him are kind of bumping up together. So Jacob decides it's time to move. And then when they go to move, I'm fast-forwarding through a lot of the story. Rachel does some really silly something. She takes something from her father that angers him, And so now Jacob and his wives and his cattle are going this way, and Laban finds out, and he gets his men, and they start to chase Jacob down. And then Jacob, knowing that Laban is chasing him, gets word that Esau is coming from the other direction to meet him. It's been 14 years, but Esau hasn't forgotten what's going on. And so now Jacob is caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. So the night before Jacob is supposed to meet up with Esau. He sends his family across the stream. He stays back by himself, and he begins to pray. And he prays. And apparently at some point he falls asleep, and he has a dream. And it's, just, it's this odd dream with this enigmatic person, this um, 
Sometimes the story refers to it as the angel of God. Other times it's God himself. But he has this really real dream that he's wrestling with God. Have you ever had a, like a real dream where you wake up and you can't tell if that was real or not real? I remember once when I was younger, I, f- I was sleeping, and all of a sudden um, this rodent crawled up on my chest, and I assumed it was a hamster or something. Like my, I had a pet hamster. I think I assumed that pet hamster had escaped. And, uh, you know, it startled me. And so I grabbed the hamster, and I threw him as, just as, like, just, I wasn't thinking. I just grabbed the hamster and threw it as hard as I could, uh, because that's what you do in rodents. Am I not the only one who would do that? That's what I did. And, but, but then I woke up, and I was laying in the middle of the floor, and I was trying to reconstruct, okay, what exactly just happened there? And I realized that I had been sleeping, and that I had uh, fallen asleep on top of my arm, and my arm was dead and numb, um, which that whole, your appendage is falling asleep thing, I think is just weird. I think God should have made us where you could like take your arms off and hang them up and then sleep because I'm constantly having problems with sleeping on my appendages. And, uh, but anyhow, so my arm was numb and I rolled over and this thing fell on my chest. And like I, my brain could have thought of a million things could have been like a love pat for my dad or something, but no, I go to small rodent going for my juggler. And so in my sleep, I grab what's now my arm and I throw it as hard as I can. And now I'm laying in the middle of the floor. I was literally beside myself. Think about it. It's pretty funny. So I don't know how Jacob's dream went down, but it was a real, real realistic dream. And he has this dream that he's wrestling an angel of God. And they wrestle all night long. And they're wrestling, and the sun's about to come up. And the way the narrator tells the story, it's comical because it's like the angel of God realizes that, that Jacob um, is just basically not going to let go. I mean, Jacob is hanging on to dear life right? Because his name is Heel Grabber. I mean, if you're going to get in a wrestling match, you probably don't want to go in with Heel Grabber because he's really good at it. And Jacob's doing what he's always done. He's grabbing on to this thing and he's saying, in fact, at one point the narrator says that the angel of God says, let, let me go. I mean, it's, it's scintillating storytelling. Let me go. And Jacob says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. And uh, he's just hanging on for, for uh, dear life. And then Right before the sun comes up, I, I just find this strange. The angel of God says, um, oh, hey, by the way, what's your name? Okay, he didn't say, by the way. I added that part. He said, oh, he might have. I mean, I don't know. I don't speak original Hebrew, but I wasn't there. But basically the idea is, oh, by the way, what's your name? Now, they've been wrestling all night long. I think it's strange at this moment to ask the guy's name. I would have, usually those kind of pleasantries are exchanged before you start fighting. Um, like, well, I should say my only experience with fighting was in second grade. In fact, the first day of second grade, I showed up as a brand new school, Franklin Elementary School, where I grew up in Council Plus, Iowa. And the first day of second grade, this kid came up to me and he said, hey, what's your name? I said, my name's Jonathan Foster. He said, cool. My name's Jamie Botts. Would you like to fight after school? <laughs> I'm like, Sure, I guess that's how we do it here. And uh, it wasn't until after school was over and the big crowd of kids gathered around that I realized this was going down and, um, and we had a fight. And by the way, I did get the last punch in. I just, 
make sure you knew that. Yeah. <laughs> it was as I was running as fast as I could by him, and I punched him, sucker punched him, and went home. But, uh, but it is terrible, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> How do you feel about that, though, really? It's terrible. So that was my only experience of fighting, and we exchanged names beforehand. I assume that's how everyone does it. Apparently not the angel of God. Ten hours later, before the sun's coming up, Jacob's not letting go, and the angel says, what's your name? And when the angel says, what's your name, Jacob says, my name is Jacob. But when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, he's not just saying, my name is Jacob. I think for the first time in his life, Jacob is saying, my name is Heel Grabber trickster, deceiver. I think this is the whole story of Jacob wrapped up here. I think in that moment for the first time, Jacob owns up to who he is. He confesses. Like he, he realizes there's no end run around this thing. He realizes he's got a whole bunch of issues and he's been spending his whole life deceiving everyone else. But now, it's, that's a beautiful story. Now after wrestling with God, he finally owns up to it, and he says, oh, my name is Trickster Deceiver. And it's only then when God blesses him. And he changes his name to Israel. He becomes the father of the nation of Israel. By the way, it's for a whole other message, but I find it interesting that Israel means the one who wrestles with God, which tells you a lot about Israel's relationship with God. And subsequently, I think it tells us about our relationship with God. Because the truth is, a lot of our prayer life winds up just being wrestling with God. It's wrestling. But that's for a whole other message. So God blesses Jacob. And then at the end of the fight, he like puts this move on Jacob. I don't know exactly how this went down. But whatever he does uh, winds up hurting Jacob's hip. And so Jacob now leaves the fight, but he's limping. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be in an authentic relationship with God. Because when you're with God, you will get blessed and life will be better, but you will limp. You, you just will. That's the way it works. And it's not because God needs you to limp. It's not because God is forcing bad things on you. It's because you, like me, all of us, we don't own up to who we are, and it winds up causing issues. We don't enter into the pain, and it winds up hurting us in some way that we, we do wind up limping. And it's, it's all wrapped up in this mysterious, beautiful way of God working in our life. The limp. And we kind of speculate here. We don't really know for sure. But I, I'm guessing for the rest of Jacob's life, he remembered about God's blessing because of the limp. Like whenever he forgot for just a moment why things were going the way that they were and why he was being blessed, like he'd get up off the couch and he'd start limping. He'd be like, oh yeah, I, I remember God and I wrestling and what this is all about. I think it's a great picture of someone in an authentic relationship with God. You'll be better, but you'll wind up, you'll wind up limping. You probably know people who are limping. You might be limping. I've got a friend who, uh, it's a crazy story, but he sunk his life savings into this business and 
hired a good friend of his to run the business, and then the guy wound up stealing all his money. And the doors of his business got locked while he was out of town. It's ridiculous stuff. And I've watched my friend go through this um, really with what I would say uh, with grace and beauty. Um, And his testimony is pretty amazing, but he walks with a limp. I mean, his dream is gone. I just met a, a young gal at our church recently. She, she got pregnant. She and her husband uh, were trying to have children, and so she became pregnant only to find out three months into it that their daughter would never live outside the womb. And so they had to decide what they were going to do, and they wound up deciding to carry this little girl as long as they could, knowing every single day Imagine that, that this, this person would never live outside, and they did that. And, and I, I heard her tell the story, and um, she was crying and laughing, and it was all these emotions. Um, it was beautiful, but she walks with a limp. It's a picture of what it's like to be in the middle of life and to be present to God. Truth is, I walk with a limp myself. You know, I got to be here last year and talk to you about some of the recent things that have gone on in our life. On January 1st, 2015, our oldest daughter, Quincy, was killed in a car wreck. And life was massively rearranged for us. The last 30 or so months have been the most remarkable 30 months of our lives. We've seen so many good things happen. In our our little church, we started a church with nothing um, four years ago. We had no people, no building, no money. Uh, That little church has been marked profoundly. Um, Some of Quincy's friends, uh, uh, their lives have been changed. People around the country have have, uh, helped us. and The work we're doing in Haiti has been amazing. Uh, did I mention this? I, I can't remember, but Quincy was planning to be a medical missionary. In the last couple of years, we've had an opportunity now to hire a, a Haitian uh, nurse in this part of the world that we're pretty confident there's never been a full-time nurse. We're building soccer fields. We've raised like seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 in a couple of years and just trying to enter into life. And there's these really great stories that I wish I had time to tell you about in Haiti. But the truth is, and I'm not necessarily proud of this, but the truth is, if I could change it all, I, I would have Quincy back. And I'm a little embarrassed because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to have a bigger picture kind of things, but, you know, I'm a dad. And the truth is, if I could change it, I'd have it back. Because we, we walk with a limp. A few years ago... Um, I think it was Quincy's senior year of high school. I write about this in the book. Uh, she and I went to Southern Cal, and we got introduced to a tiny little citrus called a kumquat. Any of you familiar with kumquat? It's not a big Oklahoma fruit or a Kansas City fruit. I'd never heard of a kumquat. Now, I grew up in Iowa. You know, we, just, we had corn. That's our <laughs> it. Trees, corn trees, corn, you know. Kumquats, they're this fascinating, tiny little citrus. It's about the size of a grape. It looks like an orange. And I, uh, I tried to bring some with me today, but it's not kumquat season. 
I will be in Florida in a couple weeks, and there may be some leftovers down there. But, but a kumquat, you've got to try it if you ever get the opportunity. It's the craziest piece of fruit because what happens is when you bite into it, the juice is bitter. It's the most bitter thing you can imagine. You're, you should be salivating right now. Uh, but the rind, once you bite into it, is sweet. And so it's this odd juxtaposition of bitterness and sweetness all together exploding in your mouth. And so we popped them into our mouths. You know, I can picture her. We were both just laughing like, this is, the, this is crazy. Who would have ever thought of creating a piece of fruit like this? The thing about the kumquat is you, you will never get to the sweetness unless you experience the bitterness. There, there's no other way to do it. You can't have just the sweetness. You have the bitterness and the sweetness. And so life is. That's the way that it is. So many of us try to get to the sweetness some other way rather than going through the bitterness. But the bitterness is where Jesus is. That's what the cross means. I'm not trying to be oversimplistic because there's a lot of things that the cross means. But if, but if nothing else, it's that Jesus taught us to go right into the heart of our deepest issues. And that's where the sweetness of God can explode. There's no sweetness without the bitterness. I think that's what a Christian is in some ways. It's just the person who says, all right, all right, doesn't matter what else happens. God might slay me. God might allow life. I'm going through the bitterness. That's what the psalmist said. Even though God slays me, this is where I'm going. And that's what Jesus did. And guess what? He was slain. But the power of God is greater than any bitterness we've ever experienced. Furthermore, I think the Christian is not just someone who says, I'm, I'm going into the bitterness and I'm going to experience the sweetness here, but it's also the person who says, now one day, one day, we're going to experience ultimate sweetness where all this bitterness is going to melt away. The book of Revelation says that... Um, that the kingdom of heaven, when it's ushered in, and not, not just the heaven that we go to or that we often talk about, like when we die right now, we're not even actually 100% sure about the afterlife based on what scripture says. What we are sure of is that Jesus taught he was bringing the kingdom of heaven. And when he comes back, which is what we believe, which could happen today, that would be an awesome way to end this day. When Jesus comes back and ushers in the kingdom of heaven and that whole new thing happens, what we've been assured of is that there will be no more suffering. However, that there will be no more suffering is different than saying that there is no awareness of suffering. Now, I'm just guessing here, after praying about it and thinking about it, it seems to me that there has to be an awareness of suffering in the kingdom of heaven because what else will there be when we see the wounds of Jesus on his hands and on his feet and on his side. I don't think we're going to say, oh, that's great, but we're in heaven, so I don't really care. I'm going to put my white robe on and go sing another chorus of whatever down by the river. I don't think it's going to work like that. I don't think we're going to suffer, but I think we're going to have an awareness of suffering. And I think when we get to heaven, or when heaven gets to us, probably more appropriately, that we'll finally realize all we've ever wanted was joy, but joy is so costly and it cost Jesus his life. And I think in that moment when we see the wounds, it'll be simultaneously the most grotesque and the most beautiful things that we will have ever seen or experienced. And somehow the holiness in that moment, like fragrance, will just fill the kingdom of heaven unlike anything we've ever experienced. 
But what I want to tell you today is what I think is that the people who experience the beauty and the joy and the sweetness of heaven then are the people who are looking for it now. I don't think, thank you, I don't think if you've spent your whole life raising hell that when you get into the eternal dimension that you're going to even want heaven. What does that even mean? You're not even going to recognize it. I don't think if you spent your whole life walking in the dark that there you're all of a sudden going to want light. I think you will do the same thing there that you've always done here, which speaks to the importance of looking for it now. Looking for it now. The people finding joy there are the people finding joy here. The people finding sweetness there, even when their awareness of bitterness, are the people here who are looking for it. What I want to tell you today, I've said all this today, it's the way I end the book, and I think it's a great way to end our time together, is now is the key to eternity. Don't wait, don't wait, don't wait. God is a good artist. He's making beautiful and good stuff out of you. You just can't see it because you're not at the end yet. You're in the middle of a good story. Today is the day for God's salvation, and he's not willing that anyone should perish. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. So, Father God, we approach your throne today. We are humbled by your great act of love and mercy and sacrifice. And we're going to prepare our hearts in just a moment here to take the elements of communion, the broken body, the, the, the shed blood of Jesus. What a, what a great uh, symbol. I mean, we've talked about kumquats and bitterness and sweetness even more so. This is what the Eucharist is. This is what communion is. It's just this full plate and cup of bitterness and sweetness. And we enter into it today. We enter into it. Like we, we throw off the chains that so easily entangle us. Would you forgive us for the ways that we try to figure it all out? And we say, oh, no, wait. Let me just, let me just wait another day or another week till I get it figured out. It's just a lie from the enemy. We cast off that today, and we enter into the mess of our life. We're so grateful that you're going to make something good out of it. We trust you. We love you. We worship the one true God, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.